Hello and welcome to the IFSEC Global Security in Focus podcast, where we bring you exclusive interviews with leading figures in the physical security industry to get to the heart of the profession. Here we are, episode seven. I'm sure regular listeners will be aware by now, but I'm your host, James Moore, the editor of IFSEC Global. As always, we've got another fantastic guest on the podcast today. The subject matter at times is somewhat sobering, but also hugely important and one we felt was worthy of discussion in relation to the wider security industry. Throughout the next half an hour, you'll hear insight from Dr. Marisa Randazzo about her experiences in the US Secret Service and how this led to expertise and research into violence prevention for security professionals at educational institutions in the United States. We also hear Marisa's advice for security professionals across the industry and why they should look to invest time training in behavioural psychology. We'll get into what's covered this episode a little bit more following the news, though, with Rihanna Sexton. Over to you, Rihanna. Following the launch of new guidance for improved media and security relations on the front line, the International Professional Security Association, or IPSA as it is known, held its first roundtable in collaboration with the National Union of Journalists in October. Key stakeholders, including IFSEC Global, were invited from the media and security industries to the roundtable hosted at the British Library. An open discussion was held to help both sectors further understand each other's challenges on the front line. Also in the news, security cameras are to be installed on every New York subway car. The Metropolitan Transport Authority New York City Transit has announced it will be investing $5.5 million into installing security cameras across the entire fleet of its subway cars. The move, which is designed to enhance security coverage and increase passenger confidence in the safety of the subway system in New York, was announced in late September by Governor Kathy Hochul. Thank you, Rihanna. So, back to today's special guest, Marisa Randazzo. During the discussion, we cover Marisa's experience in the United States Secret Service, as we said earlier, and then we move on to her research into the behavioural psychology surrounding school shootings. I won't go into too much detail now, as I don't want to spoil the rest of the episode, but the underlying question really surrounding the topic was, can such incidents be predicted, and therefore, can they be prevented? What Marisa and her team's research have found through a mixture of investigative evidence and actually interviewing 10 school shooters directly is fascinating. She notes how the patterns are actually very similar to what the Secret Service had already uncovered about assassination attempts, now known in the field as a pathway to violence. A short bio read for some background though. Dr. Marisa Randazzo is currently the Executive Director for Threat Management at ONTIC, having been CEO of Sigma Threat Management Associates, which was then acquired by ONTIC in 2021. She is recognized internationally as an expert on threat assessment and threat management, school shootings, and various other types of targeted violence and protective intelligence investigations. She is also director of threat assessment for Georgetown University, having previously served for 10 years in the US Secret Service. Her research has been used by professionals in the federal, state, and local law enforcement communities, and she has also co-authored two leading books on threat assessment, both of which you can find links for in the episode description. Plenty of experience to discuss the topic then. Look, we cover a lot over the next half an hour, so I won't keep you from the conversation any longer. We start by asking Marisa to introduce herself and what it was like starting her career at the US Secret Service. 
My name is Marisa Randazzo. I am currently the Executive Director of Threat Management for Ontic. I previously founded the company Sigma Threat Management Associates, and we were acquired by Ontic almost a year ago now. And it's been a wonderful experience for the entire team at Sigma. We've really combined forces in terms of what we had been doing at Sigma and continue to do now under the Ontic banner is provide training and guidance in behavioral threat assessment and management. And it's a field that focuses on how we prevent violence and what we can learn about violent attacks that help us prevent future incidents of violence. I actually got into this field from a fortuitous meeting I had when I was a graduate student and I attended a professional conference. There's a division of the American Psychological Association known as the American Psychology Law Society. And it's a place where people who have intersecting interests in human behavior and legal processes, criminal justice system in the U.S. and the U.K., how juries make decisions, how eyewitnesses recall accurately or not what they see at crimes, a whole array of ways that those fields intersect. And I was interested in that as I was in an undergrad and then in graduate school. And and I happened to meet a wonderful woman at a professional conference who ran a small behavioral research shop within the U.S. Secret Service. And I found out that they took internships. Graduate students could apply to be interns within this behavioral research program at the U.S. Secret Service. And I applied and I got in and I interned for a year while I was still completing my graduate degree. And I got to know the agency and got to be a part of their mission, even as a graduate student intern. And then after I was finishing up my graduate degree, a position opened up for a research psychologist at the Secret Service. And I applied for that position and was able to win that position and then had a 10-year career at the Secret Service after that. That was really where I got my foundational career experience in learning about not only how to study different acts of violence, including how to interview people in prison settings who've committed atrocious acts of violence and really try to find out they were thinking, then also really be able to study um, what we know from criminal investigative files and collateral interviews, and then really be able to take that information and teach people how we can use it to try to prevent future acts of violence. And so from the Secret Service onward, I have been privileged to train tens of thousands, it's probably even higher now, of law enforcement professionals, professionals in the intelligence communities, And then civilians in the private sector who are charged with keeping people safe, whether it's a school psychologist, a teacher, a human resources professional, corporate security, mental health professionals generally. And then in addition to doing that training, I have probably worked on, been part of a team that has assessed thousands of cases over the past several decades. It's really interesting to see how you kind of almost fell into the area. And that's often how a lot of careers start in the security sector and the threat management sector. You don't necessarily always see that as a direct route. It kind of happens and people sort of love it. Obviously, your experience in the Secret Service sounds really interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure how much you're able to go into it, but what was that experience like working for the Secret Service and how did that set you up for moving into you know the private sector and that kind of area afterwards? 
It was a wonderful experience. And I was there for about a decade and I left, gosh, over 17 years ago now. So one of the things that was a unique honor for me is that I got to, and anyone working at Secret Service got to do this, but I got to be part of a, of a larger mission. And I was small cog in a large bit of machinery that was there not only to protect an individual, the president of the United States and other protectees like the first family and then visiting heads of state when they are within the U.S. Those are all Secret Service protectees. So the Secret Service is charged with protecting all of those people and, and anyone serving at the agency in whatever capacity is a part of that mission. And so it was a, a wonderful honor to be able to be a part of that mission, not only in helping to keep those individuals safe, but really in protecting the office of the presidency and protecting democracy. So a young professional right out of graduate school to be a part of something that huge was an incredible experience, something I value tremendously. Also was fascinating because it is the only law enforcement agency at the time it was that truly valued behavioral research to be able to bring in psychologists who were trained to look at behavior and study behavior and conduct studies, empirical studies to try to understand a problem like presidential assassination and then eventually school shootings and campus shootings and, and other acts of targeted violence. So to be a part of that, to be able to work in a place that values research, we eventually became the National Threat Assessment Center that's widely known now. But the focus of all of the research was to be able to help people on the front lines of a violence challenge, on the front lines of protecting a public official or a public figure, on the front lines of keeping schools safe, what research could we do that would actually help them do that job better? The last piece I'll say is that we're working within a law enforcement agency doing research. We did research incredibly quickly and efficiently. I've worked in academic settings before where we do research and it takes a long time. <laughs> and, and here it was like, we have a job to do. This is our mission as well. And our mission is to support the mission of the U.S. Secret Service in protecting these officials and protecting the office of the presidency and protecting democracy. We've got to get this work done quickly, done well, but done quickly. It was a wonderful experience. I can imagine. Yeah, having been in academia myself, I can know how, you know, how long things take to be researched and I've actually been reading Barack Obama's biography recently, and, and it's, it's fascinating to see how quick, you know, how important efficiency is in getting things done quickly. And it's knowing who to go to, knowing hiring the right people, do the right things. And that makes everything so much quicker, I guess. And also the resources behind it, because it's ultimately one of the most important areas of protective security that you can do. And to come in from that from a, uh, from a graduate must have been an incredible experience, right? It was an incredible experience. And at the time, of course... As I was living in right out of graduate school, I didn't appreciate it for what a unique and life-shaping experience it was. But looking back, back now, I can truly see that. So yeah, often the way, right? You don't realize how amazing that must have been. And there must be so many threat vectors and things to think about when looking at, you know, protecting heads of state and democracy and everything that goes along with it. But one area that I know you specialized in is violence prevention for security professionals at educational institutions. Obviously, there's been a well-publicized threat of school and campus shootings in the US. Over here in the UK, we haven't experienced that same level. But what is your research uncovered in this area? Are there often signs, I guess, of preempting such kind of violence from perpetrators? And are these signs that security professionals can look out for? And is that something that obviously you, you help train professionals for? 
So it's fascinating. We actually got into studying school shootings in the U.S. when I was part of the Secret Service because the Secret Service was actually asked by the U.S. Department of Education to help study, to bring the research skills that we had been using, studying assassination and stalking and people targeting public officials and see if we could help take that same research approach and study school shootings in the U.S. and see what we could uncover. And so I was part of a, a team along with Brian Voskill and Dr. Robert Fine who directed a study that we refer to as the Safe School Initiative. And it was a partnership between law enforcement, the U.S. Secret Service, and educators, the U.S. Department of Education, to try to get a better understanding of how school shootings had been in the U.S. and then to be able to say, okay, understanding what we now know about school shootings in the U.S., can we create an approach that is usable in schools by school officials, by school resource officers, by school-based mental health professionals to prevent school shootings? And so we embarked on a, an 18-month-long research endeavor and uncovered what I really find to be startling information about school shootings because it really was different than what we had heard portrayed in the media. And what I'll tell you is that that research that we first released in 2001 has since been replicated again by the U.S. Secret Service and research, updated research that they released in 2019. It has findings have been, have been replicated and duplicated by the FBI's own research on active shooter incidents across a 13-year period. And then most recently, there's a, a group called the Violence Project that has a, a database of mass shootings, and they are studying mass shootings similarly, not only in schools, but throughout the U.S. And their findings have reinforced what we first found. What we discovered about school shootings is, first and foremost, that they are not impulsive. They don't happen out of the blue. The students who have carried out school shootings didn't just snap. They weren't functioning well. And then one morning they woke up and decided to bring a weapon to school and, and shoot and kill their fellow students and teachers, etc. It has been much better now. But for years, the media portrayed these events as impulsive, that, that someone just snapped. And it didn't help our efforts to try to prevent. The fact that we were able to uncover that these were not impulsive, not only did the students who carried out these school shootings, not only did they not snap, what we saw was quite the opposite. They took deliberate efforts to think out their school shootings, to plan them out in advance, to prepare for them. The FBI has this great term for about preparation and, and, and in terms of meaning they not only did they have to have a plan for what they wanted to do, but they had to start acquiring the lethal means to do this. They had to get access to weapons. They had to figure out how to get weapons to the place they wanted to do harm. And then actually to carry out the attack itself. So what we uncovered was that school shootings in the U.S. actually looked very similar to what the Secret Service research had uncovered about assassinations and assassination attempts, that they followed what we now in the field call a pathway to violence. This first coming up with an idea and then a plan and then preparing and then actually implementing the plan, carrying out the attack itself. We now know that these are not impulsive and that's good news from a prevention standpoint because it means we stand a chance finding someone on that pathway before they get to that end point, before they get to the point of carrying out the attack and being able to stop them. Now, two other critical discoveries from the research we conducted and that have since been replicated. One is that the students who carried out these school shootings didn't keep these ideas and plans a secret. They told other people beforehand. 
Now, they didn't necessarily say to their target, the person they wanted to harm, I'm going to kill you. But they told other people, they told third parties, they told peers and fellow students in school, they posted things online, they wrote things into homework assignments and handed them into teachers. FBI has a great term for this, they call it leakage. They broadcast their intentions, their violent intentions widely to other people beforehand. And we have seen this happen time and again in school shootings and other targeted violence acts that we have been able to prevent. People who were carrying them out broadcast them beforehand. We had a chance to sit down and interview school shooters in the course of this research. Ten of them were available for us to interview and agreed to be interviewed. And what we heard in those interviews was fascinating. It it added a, a richness to what we were warning from investigative files and talking with investigators and, and personnel who were there. But what we heard in the interviews, you told other people beforehand, why was that? Oftentimes what we heard back was, you know, I think in a way I wanted to be stopped. That the telling beforehand, someone who's planning an act of violence, particularly students, young people who are planning an act of violence, what we were hearing was two things. One was, I think I wanted to be stopped. And the other was they described feeling ambivalent before carrying out their school shooting. And I want to be very clear what I mean. I don't mean they felt indifferent, like they didn't care. They described feeling torn. Part of them felt like they had to carry out the school shooting or wanted to carry out the school shooting. But at the same time, a part of them didn't want to do it. And I talk about this in training so that when I'm training investigators and training school personnel how to do this, I remind them, like, keep this in the back of your mind when you are facing a student who has handed in a scary homework assignment, has said something online, is telling friends that even if they are planning something, there's a part of that person sitting across from you that doesn't want to do this. Find what that part is and work with that to get them off this pathway of violence. The last big finding that I want to highlight here, because it's so important for all of our efforts and violence prevention in schools and out of schools is that the majority of school shooters who carried out these attacks were actively suicidal or despondent at the point that they actually launched their attack. And we see this in other acts of mass shootings as well and and other acts of targeted violence, that the people who carry them out do so at a point of personal desperation, and they may be actively suicidal. And what we talk about is in training, there's a fine line that someone who gets to the point of carrying out an act of targeted violence in schools or elsewhere typically does so where they feel like they have no options left. They don't care if they live or die. In fact, they may be planning this horrific act of violence, hoping for a suicide by cop, hoping that someone will stop them, kill them in the process. And so the reason I underscore this is because when we are working at an active case, looking to see, is someone on a pathway to violence? And if so, how do we get them off? Oftentimes, the tools and resources that we already have at our disposal to handle a case where someone is suicidal, we can use for a situation like this as well. Now, I want to be very, very clear. Most people who are suicidal are not at risk of harming others. But when we're working a case, we're worried about someone at risk of harming others. We look to see, are they feeling despondent? They feel like, like this is their last resort. If so, we've got tools, we've got resources, legal and mental health and hospital-based where we can help stabilize that person and then figure out a longer-term plan 
to help solve those underlying problems and get them off that pathway to violence and onto a better path. IFSEC International returned to London's Excel in May 2022 for the first time in three years. And it returned in some style as security, facilities, fire safety, health and safety, and intelligent building integration professionals all came together across IFSEC and its co-located shows to reconnect, learn, and grow their networks. But don't take our word for it. Have a listen to what some of the exhibitors have to say themselves. It's great to be back at IFSEC, that intimate one-on-one conversations, face-to-face. You just can't replicate that over teams or virtually. What we like most about IFSEC is, is an opportunity to meet with new customers that we've not met before, chance to network with, with new businesses and new people, and it, yeah, it's an opportunity to get out into the market. It's in London, which gives us a, a fantastic opportunity to mix with clients from around the world. So for us, IFSEC is very important because it does have that international reach. So at the show, we've been meeting quite a breadth of people that have actually come to see us at the show this week. The opportunity to meet many people over such a short period of time is, is an opportunity you just don't get in an average working week. We've been exhibiting in IFSEC since 2009, so quite a long time. And we are always very excited to come here. It's an opportunity for us to see what else is going on in the industry. It's a fabulous opportunity to get uh, input and feedback from across the market. IFSEC is one of the most important shows in the world. And giving us an opportunity to keep developing our product range for what our installers need is invaluable to our growth as an organisation and IFSEC is a great place to do that. If I was to describe IFSEC in a word, it would be... Brilliant. Innovation. Large. Fantastic. Opportunity. Collaboration. Anyway, let's get back to the discussion. For the second half, we talk about how security professionals can explore the theme of behavioural psychology for themselves, particularly when they're already so overwhelmed from an increased volume of threats. As well as this, towards the end, we ask Marisa some of the key trends she is seeing in the sector as well at the moment, which I always find a fascinating discussion. Would you always advise that they invest their time looking at the psychology of behavior as well? How important part of a security professional or intelligent professional's training should that be? So first of all, you're absolutely right that security professionals and security teams, especially right now, simply overwhelmed. They're facing an increased volume of threat behavior. Coming out of COVID with political unrest, certainly in the United States, with changes in financial stability from COVID and what we were seeing, and Antic does a survey on protective intelligence, a survey of security teams and, and HR. And so we just released our, our mid-year report. And we're seeing now over the past several surveys we've done, just teams talking about facing an unprecedented level of threat activity that's being reported to those security teams. And they have to, to face them in some way, they figure out how to handle them in some way. And so what I personally think one of the best investments that a security team or security professionals can make is in getting some high quality training on behavioral threat assessment or threat assessment and threat management or threat management. It's called different things depending on who's doing the training, but really on understanding how we can prevent targeted violence impacting workplaces or impacting educational institutions, whatever your protective mission is, because it helps give those investigators, those corporate security professionals, security professionals, HR, helps to give them an understanding of what they might be seeing in front of them in terms of behavior. And then gives them the tools and a process for what to do about it. 
So instead of feeling overwhelmed, and how do I even figure out which thread I need to focus on more? This negative thing came in through social media, but I've got a report of a, of a former employee who's saying they're going to come back and, and shoot up their supervisor. Are those two equal? Well, this training helps to show you how they're not equal and where you need to focus your efforts first and how to use other people within your corporate setting, for example, to be a force multiplier, get their involvement, create a team to help spread out the work, do it quickly, do it efficiently, and follow a process that is defensible. I want to emphasize this because within the U.S., we've got a couple of American national standards that the most relevant here is there's an American national standard for workplace violence prevention and intervention. There are similar standards for security in in colleges and universities. And then we've got state laws for K-12 schools that either strongly recommend or they require that workplaces have a team in place and have this type of training in place to be able to get ahead of an incident like this, to get left of bang and be able to prevent. But it also just, in my experience, gives security professionals a much better understanding of the behavior they're seeing in front of them and gives them options for how they can possibly intervene. We often think, and security professionals are often challenged with having to live with the decisions that a C-suite may be making, for example, that leadership in an organization, whether educational institution, corporation, whatever, might be making. And oftentimes the knee-jerk reaction from leadership in an organization is just fire this person, get them out of our doors, or dismiss them if they're a student, get them out of our entity or organization. And part of what we teach in the training is that separating someone from an organization never guarantees safety, unless you have a completely hardened targeted facility that they can't get into, and then a way to keep all of your people safe to and from, and and never guarantees safety, and in fact, could inadvertently increase risk, because now you've added to the things that are overwhelming this person. There's a job loss on top of the personal situations maybe they're facing. Security in training on threat assessment, behavioral threat assessment and threat management, learns how to look at other options. You may still have to separate that person from the organization, but there are other things the team can and should do to help monitor that person. Maybe you want to do a a soft landing termination instead of just a straight termination. And the last thing that we cover in training is not only all these different ways you could manage a threat to the workplace or to your educational institution. But we also talk a piece of it about how to manage up within your organization and educate your C-suite or educate your leadership to understand the importance of doing things, maybe doing things a little bit differently in this particular situation so that you don't inadvertently increase risk. Interesting point you made earlier about all the other tools at the disposal for the security team to manage this risk. I think One thing we've talked about a lot on this podcast so far of all the different guests is collaboration between different departments, whether that be between the IT and the physical security department, which is, you know, where it's most in depth at the moment, but also the ability to start training the rest of your employees and the rest of your colleagues. I guess it helps create a a more holistic security culture within an organization or within an educational campus or whatever it might be. It's important from a practical standpoint to do this as a collaborative effort if you can. Corporate security would only have one piece of the puzzle. They have information within their own silo. It may well be that something finally comes to the attention of of a security team, but the human resources personnel have been worried about this person and working with them for quite some time. And they may have a whole lot of background information that's really helpful to know, but only if they're asked or if they're at the table already as part of this team. 
We've seen many cases where physical security or corporate security and IT security have important pieces of information and they have not talked at all and worried about the same employee or former employee, for example, where your employee assistance program, if they have some sort of mental health support or other support for employees may have information and they may have a limitation about what they can share, but they certainly can say, oh yes, this person's well known to us. They've been using our services for a while or their supervisor referred them last year for problematic behavior. So having a team that is multidisciplinary, that represents these different departments can make this whole process of threat assessment work much faster because you're already dealing with people that those individuals know, they can get information quickly. And then it makes it better because they may have knowledge of interventions or options within their silo in your organization that you within security simply don't have the visibility on. So collaboration and partnership to do this work makes it so much easier and so much more effective when you've got that multidisciplinary team that you can call upon. I wanted to ask the listeners out there who are really interested in your research into the school shootings and educational violence, where can people go and find out more about some of the work you've done and also some of the the current work that's taking place? A great place to start for listeners would be to go to the Secret Service website to the National Threat Assessment Center. So all of the research that my co-authors and I had published way back when in 2001, decades ago, and then have been replicated since, especially for violence in the educational setting, but also for targeted violence against public officials and public figures in the U.S., against federal facilities. There's some fascinating research that the National Threat Assessment Center has put out since we stood it up back in 2000, 2001. And so secretservice.gov, and then within that, you can navigate to the National Threat Assessment Center or NTAC, N-T-A-C. So that's a great place to start to learn about it. I would also highly recommend a recent book that came out by journalist Mark Fullman called Trigger Points. So Mark did a wonderful, detailed look into this whole field of behavioral threat assessment, not only within the Secret Service, but within the FBI and then individual teams like in uh, uh, Salem, Oregon and the Salem-Kaiser School District, where they set up a school-based team and then also set up a community-based team to handle non-school cases. So there are great case discussions in there great stories of individuals who've been involved in this field for years. So to read the book Trigger Points will give you a wonderful overview of the entire field across different sectors, whether you're in corporate security or educational security or private security, whatever your interest may be, it would be a great read there. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we'll try and put a couple of links in the episode description. I've got no doubt that there'll be a lot in there that's also really interesting for particularly UK themes at the moment because we're looking at um, new legislation called the Protect Duty which is looking at preventing acts like what happened with the Manchester Arena bombing in 2017. And behavioural analysis and behavioural threat assessment is, I believe, forming part of that to create a more sort of holistic security culture. So looking at it from, I guess, the counter-terror side as well, I imagine there'd be lots in there that would be relevant for that. Just a couple more things. I I guess one thing is we've been asking all our guests this and just we're we're looking to... uh, Really interesting to hear lots of different points of view on the future of the industry. Could you give me maybe two or three key trends or just topics of interest that you're seeing in the security industry at the moment? One of the big trends I'm seeing in the security industry, and this is internationally, is is a, a real uptick in interest in this field of threat assessment and threat management, because it has been something that has gotten some traction within the U.S., a lot within educational settings. But we've been doing this training for 
well over 20 years for entities outside of secret service agents and intelligence community professionals. And we've seen it kind of ebb and flow. Right now, I've been seeing a consistent uptick within corporate security, personal security in this desire to get training in behavioral threat assessment and management. And I think because it gives you an investigative process that you can follow that's defensible and that really involves you know, a number of individuals that you can do to try to prevent, to keep your entire workplace safe, not just harden the target. So I've seen a real uptick in interest in and desire for that training right now. Uh, finally, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you run your own podcast. Is that right? I do. I host a series called Women Who Protect, and it is a series within Ontic's Protective Intelligence podcast. You can go to ontic.co, I think it's slash podcast, ontic.co, not com, ontic.co, O-N-T-I-C.co slash podcast, and pull up any of them that are tagged Women Who Protect. It's a brand new series. We've done a couple of episodes, but it's personally a passion of mine because I get to talk to women and all different positions within security and hear their career paths, talk to them about how they'd encourage women and girls to to join our ranks within security. So it's a great listen. It's been a wonderful project to be a part of. I've had a listen to one of the episodes earlier and yeah, I definitely encourage any of our listeners to go and have a listen as well. There's lots out there in the physical security world that maybe isn't sort of talked about as much as it it could be. And I think that particular topic is, is definitely one of them. It's something we talked about in in our first episodes of our podcast and lots to think about and lots to share. So, Mr. thank you so much for your time. Really, really interesting, really insightful. And yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed being on. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I, I truly enjoyed it. Thank you. Welcome back. And our thanks to Dr. Marisa Randazzo for joining us. I must admit, I'm feeling a bit lucky to have been joined by two doctors in their field over the last couple of episodes. I think it really shows the variety of topics in the security sector, but also the amount of specialisms and areas that security professionals need to have an awareness or some oversight of. To summarise that conversation in a few sentences is quite simply impossible. Um, In one word, I'd say fascinating. It's good to hear, as Marisa mentioned towards the end of the episode, that there is a growing interest in behavioural threat assessment from security professionals, as clearly it can play a huge role in improving awareness and decision-making throughout the sector when faced with such an issue of school shootings. It's worth mentioning a topic that we actually discussed shortly after the recording, comparing the issue to the UK and why school shootings are such a US-dominated challenge in comparison. Now, aside from the obvious, that being access to guns, and we won't go down that particular rabbit hole here, Marisa also highlighted the safeguarding procedures that are in place in schools in the UK, which actually go a long way, according to research anyway, towards the prevention of such extreme incidents. Hearing that students who had been involved in shootings had often premeditated their behaviour and sometimes broadcast their intentions quite plainly suggests that there may be opportunities to prevent things from ever getting to that point if the appropriate processes are in place within an environment that embraces and fosters collaboration something that we've discussed on almost every episode so far of the IFSEC Global Security and Focus podcast series. It's just all worth thinking about when it comes to future training plans for predicting many other acts of targeted violence, including terrorism, as noted towards the end. Could it be something that the future protect duty in the UK here might consider in some format, perhaps? I'll leave that one for you to ponder, though. There's a few useful links in the episode description to some of the books and research hubs mentioned by Marisha throughout, so do check them out if you have time. 
I'm actually really looking forward to reading Trigger Point by Mark Folman, which Marisa mentioned in particular. But that is all from this episode of the Security in Focus podcast. This has been a podcast from Estate Global. Don't forget to follow us on all of the social media platforms you're on to keep up with the latest in the industry. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.